Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful, Lord, for the privilege and the opportunity once again to hear you speak to our hearts, Father, and to help us to see how we can truly enter into the experience of all of the three angels' messages. Lord, we realize that we're living in a time where time truly is almost finished. And it's our desire to reflect that lovely image of Jesus as we should. And while we have learned some beautiful principles of what it is to fear God and to practically enter into the experience of that first angel, Lord, we also recognize that you give a warning and you give a call in the three angels' messages for your people to come out of Babylon. And Father, it's our desire that we will look deeply into this topic, not so much from the theoretical standpoint, for there's been much taught on it, but Lord, we're going to look at it also from the experimental. We ask for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit to first convict our hearts of sin so that we can truly recognize our sins and see them and ask you to please forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But Lord, we also pray for thy Holy Spirit to give us power because while you call us out of a life of sin, you're calling us into a life of holiness. And neither one of these can be done by might or by power, but only by your spirit. And so, Father, we pray, please give us power to enter into the experience of the three angels' messages. And Lord, we trust and believe that as you have heard this prayer, we know that you've answered it. For we ask it in faith, believing, praying, please help thou our unbelief. For this is our prayer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 14. We're going to Revelation, the 14th chapter, and we're going to take a look at the second angel's message. The Bible says in Revelation, the 14th chapter, and we're going to look at verse 8. This is the second angel. When the second angel comes on the scene, there are some things about the second angel you'll notice that is very different. The first angel speaks with a loud voice. The third angel speaks with a loud voice. The second angel doesn't. The second angel just simply states its point. But there's a reason for that. The Bible says in Revelation 14 and verse 8, it says, And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city. Why? Because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. It was in the time of the Millerite movement that as a result of people rejecting the first angel's message, that ultimately by rejecting God's truth, in its entirety, that it developed the churches into becoming what the Bible calls Babylon. But in that stage in the Millerite movement in his day, these churches were in an infancy stage of apostatizing from God's truth. But God saw that there was going to be a graduating, if you would. There was going to be a time where it was going to get so bad in earth's history that the second angel's message will be repeated. And it's found in Revelation 18 when it will be repeated. Now, I want you to notice what it says in Revelation 18 that is different from Revelation 14, 8. The Bible says in Revelation, the 18th chapter, we looked at this on the opening night talking about the loud cry. And in Revelation, the 18th chapter, the Bible says in verse one, and after these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power. And the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice. So now the first time the angel was just saying it in Revelation 14, eight. But now we find that the angel is crying with a strong voice. And the Bible says, and he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon, the greatest fallen is fallen. And is become the habitation of devils 
and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, do what? Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins and that you receive not of her plagues for her sins have reached unto heaven and God hath remembered her iniquities. We are living in such a time today. We are living in a time where we are seeing that the churches that constitute Babylon, remember that a woman in Bible prophecy or Bible prophetic language represents a church according to Jeremiah 6, 2, according to Isaiah 51 and verse 16. The Bible tells us that a woman, when spoken of in prophetic language, the Bible says that it represents a church. Here goes churches that the Bible declares as Babylon that have unfortunately caused the whole world to become drunk with her wine, her false doctrines. Now, you'll remember that Babylon, when you go way back to Genesis, the 11th chapter, and you look at the Tower of Babel, and you see that the Tower of Babel was a place of great confusion. It was a place of rebellion. And then, of course, it was a place of confusion because God confounded their language and they couldn't communicate with each other. Everybody was confusing one to another, and therefore they were not successful in building up the Tower of Babel to the point that they desired. Now, Confusion is the very foundation of Babylon and its doctrines, its teachings is that which brings about confusion. Now, let's learn something about God in 1 Corinthians 14. In 1 Corinthians, the 14th chapter, we find why God definitely wanted to go ahead and label Babylon and have it known to be a place where he says, I don't want my people in it. I want my people to come out of it. Notice what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians, the 14th chapter, as we consider verse 33. There was much confusion in the church of Corinth. There was confusion of tongues, interestingly enough, as there was confusion of tongues in Babylon. And so it is that between confusion of tongues, confusion of uh, communication between women and men and so on, to the point that God had to actually tell the women to remain silent in the churches because of the fact that when they were inquiring or seeking to understand certain things, it would create confusion in the sanctuary, in the structure. Well, here it is that God now had to declare a point about himself so he could try to get a point, get across to his people what he wanted them to be. It says in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 33, the Bible says, for God is not the what? Author of confusion. But it says, but of peace as in how many of the churches? In all the churches. God does not want confusion in any church that names his name. And as a result of that, when Babylon got to a point where it became such a horrible place of confusion, God said, come out of her, my people. Do not partake of her sins and receive not of her plagues. Now, when we're talking about the issue of confusion, like I said, we could, there's a way that we can go about this where we can get very much into the theology of Babylon. Who is it? How do we know? And so on. But that's not my focus. My focus is dealing with what? The experience of the second angel. Now, in dealing with this, one of the first things we're going to have to ask is, is the Seventh-day Adventist Church Babylon? That's a question we're going to have to ask as well as answer, because there are even people today that will say, well, there's confusion in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, so does that make the church Babylon? And there are many movements today that will go around telling us that the church is Babylon. There are many individuals, but guess what? It was not just in our day, it was also even in the days of our great pioneers. Of course, I'm talking even about Ellen White, 
There were individuals who actually came to her and were saying to her, you know what? The Seventh-day Adventist church has gotten so bad. There's so many issues within our church that they began to say, I think we need to come out. And there were individuals who got to the point that they didn't think anymore. As far as they were concerned, they knew. They said, we need to come out. And they were giving a message telling people to come out of the Seventh-day Adventist church so they could start another holier group of people. Well, Ellen White had a comment about this, and I want you to see what she says. She made a very clear statement. She says this, number one, from Last Day Events, page 51. It says, the Lord has not given you a message to call the Seventh-day Adventist what? Babylon. It says, and to call the people of God to come out of her. It says, all the reasons you may present cannot have weight with me on this subject. Now, it would be one thing if Sister White just said, it can't have weight with me because I just made up my mind. I'm stubborn. It's possible people can say it that way, but notice how she says why it cannot have weight with her. It says, because the Lord has given me what kind of light? Decided light. Now, you know what I did? And you want to learn this as a student of prophecy. You want to learn that when you go through and when you look at certain wordings in the Bible and in the spirit of prophecy, you want to find out other areas in the Bible, other areas in the spirit of prophecy where that same language is used. I decided to look up in all of the writings of Ellen White. Where does she use these terms decided light? And every single time she uses the term decided light, it was like God was saying, this is my final instruction. This is my final statement. In other words, this is decided light. I have made my decision and I'm not changing it. Decided light. She says, the Lord has given me what kind of light? Decided light that is opposed to such a message. So therefore, God has made a final statement through his servant, through his messenger, to let us know even today that God says this church is not and will not be Babylon. Can you say amen to that? Now notice, it says... As we continue, I know that the Lord loves his church. You mean God could love a church with so many bad people in it? You mean God could love a church where sometimes everybody is not getting along and not seeing things in the same page? Yes. And you know why? Because that's consistent with God's character. Because I can guarantee you when God saw Jupiter, he saw things all good. When God looked at Mars, he saw things all good. When God looked at the other galaxies and the other worlds, God saw that things were all good. But when God looked at the earth, God saw a problem. And when God saw the problems that was going to arise on this planet, this one lost sheep in the midst of a whole universe of beings who remained obedient. You know, the Bible talks about terrestrial beings. The Bible says, woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. And the Bible also says, rejoice ye heavens and ye that dwell in them. There are beings that live on these other worlds. We, they don't look like E.T. in some of these ridiculous images that people put in movies. But there are beings that live in other worlds and they have not fallen. We're the only one that have. And as a result of that, God looks at the earth and God saw a people that would rebel against him as well as a majority who would reject him. But love motivated him to come to this earth anyhow and to bring salvation. And so it is that the same way God had that love and that spirit for the people in this world, God has that same love for his church. Enfeebled and defective though it may be, it is still the only object on earth upon which God holds his supreme regard. It says, I know that the Lord loves his church. It is not to be disorganized or broken up into independent atoms. 
There is not the least consistency in this. There is not the least evidence that such a thing will be. Now, she even went on to say, no advice or sanction is given in the word of God to those who believe the third angel's message. You know, there are people today who believe, well, let's just go. There's so much apostasy. Let's just break away. Let's start our own thing and do our own thing. But listen, no advice or sanction is given in the word of God to those who believe the third angel's message to lead them to suppose that they can draw apart. It says this. You may settle with yourselves. How long? Forever. Settle this with yourselves forever. It goes on to say, it is the devising of what kind of minds? Unsanctified minds that would encourage a state of disunion. The sophistry of men may appear right in their own eyes, but it is not truth and righteousness. For he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross. Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. This comes from third selected messages, page 21. God has a church, brothers and sisters. It is enfeebled. It is defective. It has individuals and people in it that are not for Jesus Christ. That is a fact. But there has never been a time that God has had a church where there were not people in it that were not on the Lord's side. But brothers and sisters, the solution is not to tell everybody to come out and let's go ahead and just do our own thing. That's not how it's going to work. So therefore, when we're dealing with the experience of the second angel's message, we are not calling the Seventh-day Adventist Church Babylon. We are not saying that at all. That's not the focus. That's not the emphasis. Nevertheless, there is a Babylonian condition. There is a Babylonian condition. While the Seventh-day Adventist church is not Babylon, it is definitely true that there are many Babylonians in the church. Are you following? Are you following? It is definitely true that the Seventh-day Adventist church is not Babylon. But it is quite true that there are many Babylonians in it. Go to the book of Romans chapter 9. Let me show you something. And I want you to take this home to your heart because we're about to get into some meat, but I'm building the foundation. Go to the book of Romans chapter 9. Notice what the Bible says. Romans chapter 9. If there was one counsel that I can give to all of our uh, organizations, the, the, the GYCs, the armies, and all the different groups of the world, the one thing I will say is this. Never, ever hold meetings directly after a meal. No, I'm very serious. Never, ever hold. Stop doing that. The reason why is you're crippling the people, because when you eat food, your body has to digest it. And when your body has to digest it, it needs blood to do that. So what's going to happen is the blood is going to have to work in the system to help break down the food that we ate. The problem is, is that when we go into a Bible study, your brain also needs blood so that it can work properly so we can be cognizant and understand what we're studying. So what's going to happen is when you do a study directly after a meal, what's going to happen is your body is literally going through a great controversy because the belly needs blood to break down the food. But the brain needs blood so it can think properly. And what happens typically is the mind gets drawn. And then on top of that, Ellen White says that Satan often comes into the meetings and breathes upon the individuals to lull them to sleep so that they will not understand the point that perhaps they needed to hear. I am serious when I say it. Please start pushing the meetings further away. 
If it means less meetings, so be it. It's better to have shorter meetings, smaller meetings where people can understand than to have a ton of meetings and people leave just as ignorant as when they came in because they couldn't understand anything because they were going through a controversy in their own system. Are you following? I'm serious. I pray they play this thing on audio verse. Amen. Now, notice what the Bible says in Romans chapter nine. Look at this now. Romans chapter nine. The Bible says in Romans nine and verse six, Paul made it clear Not everybody, brothers and sisters, is for God's message in God's church. This should not shock anyone. The Bible makes this clear. Look at what it says in Romans 9 and verse 6. The Bible says, not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Not everybody who is in the midst of Israel are indeed Israelites. The same way, just because a person has a membership in the Seventh-day Adventist church does not mean that they're Seventh-day Adventists. A person can call themselves Christians. We have people today who smoke, drink, and fornicate and will go ahead and put out the most lewd and foul music and then get an award for it and have the nerve to go on a stage and say, I thank Jesus Christ for my success. Brothers and sisters, Jesus said a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. And for someone to think that Christ is with them while they're doing the most lewd, debased and ungodly and unbiblical practices, that's blasphemy. But we can see that in the world. But many times in the church, you have a lot of people who say they are Seventh-day Adventists. But when you begin to go ahead and stand upon the truths given to the movement, all of a sudden, individuals begin to fight against it. Brothers and sisters, not all who say they are Israel are Israel. And not all who say they are Seventh-day Adventists are Seventh-day Adventists. Are you following? So therefore, when we talk about the Babylonian condition, we're dealing with a different issue now. We're not talking about people who are or the church that is Babylon. The church is not Babylon. That's clear. But we're talking about people in the remnant, but who behave like Babylonians. In fact, go to the book of Revelation chapter 17. Let's notice Revelation 17 verses 1 to 5. Notice what the Bible says. Revelation 17 and verses 1 to 5. Now, let's look at this. God has a church on this earth. That's why Laodicea is represented as the seventh church. It's the last church, brothers and sisters. It is in a deplorable condition, but Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. Now, Christ would not want to go in Babylon. God says, come out of it. So therefore, Jesus is not calling individuals to stay in Babylon while he comes in there and meets them. He says, come out of it. But when it comes to Laodicea, even though it is in a deplorable condition, he says, I stand at the door and knock and I want to come in. This is why we know that God has a church on this earth. It isn't feeble. It is defective. It is filled with the disease of Laodicean. But brothers and sisters, God says, I have a beautiful remedy on how I can make them whole. But here it is now we see that there are those in the church who are suffering with this disease. They are Babylonian in their condition. Now, look at how the Bible spells this out in Revelation 17 as we look at something called Babylon. The Bible says in Revelation 17, 1. And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls and having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. 
Now look at the description of this person or this beast or this movement in verse five. It says, and upon her forehead was a name written what? Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of what? The mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. So we find that Babylon is referred to as a whore. And then the Bible also says that her daughter, if she's a mother, she has to have children. So therefore, it says the mother of harlots. So there's a bunch of daughters as well. The word that God uses to describe churches that have turned away from his truth is he refers to them as a harlot. That's what he called Babylon. That's what he deals with the daughters. They are called harlots. Now, notice something the Bible says in Jeremiah chapter three. In Jeremiah chapter three, we're going to consider verses one to eight. And when we look at Jeremiah three, what we want to do is take a look at this now and see how God also talks about someone else who behaves like a harlot. It is not the harlot like we see in Revelation 17, but you'll see that God says that they behave like the harlot. Notice what the Bible says in Jeremiah chapter three. Now in Jeremiah, the third chapter, I want you to see how the Bible spells this out. We're just going to consider uh, verses one to eight verses one to eight. The Bible says, they say, if a man put away his wife and she go from him and become another man's, shall he return unto her again? Shall not that land be greatly polluted? But look at what God says. But thou hast done what? Thou hast played the harlot. Now, God is talking to his people, Israel. God is talking to his people, Israel. Does God have an Israel today? Yes, he does. God is talking to his people, Israel. But here it is that he says they have played what? The harlot with many lovers. But what does God say? Yet return again to me, saith the Lord. Now, it says, lift up thine eyes unto the high places and see where thou hast not been lying with. In the ways hast thou sat for them as the Arabian in the wilderness. And thou hast polluted the land with thy whoredoms. And with thy wickedness, this is God talking now to his people. This is God talking to his church. I told you Isaiah 51 and verse 16 shows us. God says, tell Zion that they are my people. God is talking to his people and he's saying, you played the harlot. You played the whoredom. You're acting like a whore. This is God talking strong language to his own church, his own people. Now look at what else it says. It says in verse three, therefore, the showers have been withholding. You see, when we begin to play the role of the whore or the harlot, when we begin to turn away from God in spiritual infidelity, God says, I cannot pour the rain. We're talking about pouring out the latter rain. Brothers and sisters, the latter rain will not come until we get victory over sin. God says, therefore, the showers have been withholding and there have been what? No latter rain. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. You can pray all you want. You can have all the meetings you want and you can find all sorts of cool ways to talk about the latter rain. The bottom line is if we continue to be spiritually infidels when it comes to our relationship with God, if we're living in sin, there will be no latter rain that will fall on you or fall on me. Early writings, page 71 says none shall receive the refreshing until they overcome every besetment. It says and overcome every wrong word and action. So it is that it says, and thou hast a whore's forehead, thou refusest to be ashamed. God was making it clear to his people that he said, you behaved like a harlot. Were they the harlot? Were they the harlot? 
No, they were not. They were not the harlot. But God said, but you played the harlot. You were behaving like the harlot. Are you following? So therefore, it is possible that we can be out of the location of the harlot, Babylon, but we can still be under the condition of the harlot, Babylon. Are you following? So therefore, what we want to do is search in our hearts to say, Lord, am I a Babylonian in my heart? It is not enough to say, praise the Lord, I'm out of the location of Babylon. But we want to say, Lord, am I playing the role of a harlot in the remnant? That's something we have to search our hearts and find out, Lord, could I have been hurting you all along? You know, Ellen White, she saw many things taking place in our church and it got to a point that she uses some strong language. I'm about to put up some quotes. I don't know if any of you have ever read this before. Brothers and sisters, when I read this one time, I had to study it because I said, Lord, could it be? But I want you to listen to this. Look at these quotations. In the days of Sister White, you know, often we say, oh, the church is so bad now. And it is. We are, we are in trouble. There's a lot of challenges within, but that's because we're the remnant. That's because we're the last movement. I remember one time somebody came to me and they said, Brother Lemon, they said, why does the devil want to attack the Seventh-day Adventist church so badly? He says, why does he attack us so hard? And I told that young man, I was in Seattle doing some meetings and I'll never forget it. I told him, I said, my brother, consider this. I said, you're standing against a wall. There are three animals that are getting ready to attack you. One is a kitten. The other is a poodle. And the other one's a bear. All three animals are literally growling and foam is on their face and everything else. All of them are ready in running position to just take off and start to attack you. What are the three animals? A kitten, a poodle, and what else? A bear. Now, I said, you have a gun next to you. The gun has one bullet. Question, who would you use the gun on? And he looked at me like I was foolish. He said, Brother Lemon. He said, of course I would shoot the bear. I said, well, why would you shoot the bear? He said, because that's the one that'll do the greatest damage to me. That's the one that can kill me. I said, really? I said, you just got your answer. He said, what do you mean? I said, you asked me, why does Satan attack the Seventh-day Adventist church so hard? I said, the reason why is because the other churches that constitute Babylon are like kittens and poodles against the devil's kingdom. A kitten, when a kitten comes to attack someone, a kitten just can scratch your toe or something like that. Make you say, ouch. But you'll be all right, wouldn't you? A poodle can come and a poodle, when a poodle comes, that poodle, it might try to, you know, bite your ankle or something like that. It could do a little bit more damage, but you'll definitely survive. You can just kick that thing off and it'll go away. Is that right? But brothers and sisters, when a bear comes, all that bear has to do is literally with one swipe. If that bear hits you, you're literally dead. Brothers and sisters, there's only one message that can bring the harvest. Do you remember what that message was? Do you remember what the message was? We talked about this. The only message that can bring the harvest is found in Revelation 14, 6 through 12. It's the three angels' messages. Brothers and sisters, the Roman Catholic Church does not have that message. The Pentecostal Church does not have that message. The Baptist Church does not have that message. The non-denominational churches do not have that message. The Muslims do not have that message. The Buddhists do not have that message. No one is going to bring about harvest time unless they give the right message, both by 
spoken word and by demonstration in the life. It is only those who have the three angels messages that, according to the Bible, can bring the harvest. And this is why Satan says, I must take them down. Because there's no other movement on earth that carries this message. There's nobody else, brothers and sisters. Do you know that the Seventh-day Adventist Church is the last effort of the Reformation? You had John Wycliffe. You had Hudson Jerome. You had William Tyndale. You had Martin Luther. We had uh, John Wesley. And the list goes on. And they all were bringing back different pieces of points of biblical truth. But brothers and sisters, we brought in the final one. We brought people back to the sanctuary. Thy way... Oh, God is in the sanctuary. And that sanctuary truth completes the system of truth. And now people can know how to get ready to meet Jesus. And Satan says, I must take them down. And Satan's method has always been work from within. So therefore, what does the devil do? Let's notice Ellen White. She saw that the church got into such a condition We were attacked so hard that I want you to look at the strong language that she had to use one time under the inspiration of Jesus Christ. It says we must as a people arouse and cleanse the camp of Israel. It says licentiousness, unlawful intimacy and unholy practices are coming in among us in a large degree. It says and who ministers, brothers and sisters, there's something dangerous. When even leadership in many respects, of course, not all praise the Lord. But there's something wrong when even the ministers fall into the same debased practices as what is typically seen amongst the laity. It says and ministers who are handling sacred things are guilty of sin in this respect. It says they are coveting their neighbor's wives and the seventh commandment is broken. This is in the days of Ellen White. You know, we often think of the 1800s and we think everybody was holy and pure. No, brothers and sisters, there was debased practices. One of the biggest differences between the days of Sister White and our day is we are more open about the same sinful practices that they were doing in her day. Today, you can find it on TV. Today, you can see it on billboards and books. Back in these days, people were just a little more subtle. They were a little more sneaky about it. But these things were happening even in her day, even in our church. But notice what it says. It goes on to say this. After she saw this horrible condition that our people have fallen into, she says a very startling statement. Notice what she says. She says, we are in danger of becoming a sister to fallen Babylon. Did you see that? The condition of the people got so bad that she says we are in danger of becoming a sister, a kin to the very wicked things that was happening in Babylon. She says, we are in danger of becoming a sister to fallen Babylon, of allowing our churches to become corrupted and filled with every foul spirit, a cage for every unclean and hateful bird, and will be clear unless we make decided movements to cure the existing evil. Testimonies on Sexual Behavior, page 188. Ellen White saw that a time was coming that she says, if we don't get our behaviors in check, she says, we can become a sister to fallen Babylon. You're talking about the Babylonian condition. In 1888, there was also 
a great conference meeting where the brethren were coming together to study righteousness by faith. They were going to take the theory of what was happening in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary and they were going to make it practical in their experience. God used two men. Who remembers what those two men's names were? Does anybody know? Jones and Wagner. Amen. God used those two men to help bring about the people biblical righteousness by faith. But many of the people rejected the message. Many of the people said, no, we don't accept it. Now, as a result of that, did you know Sister White had a comment on that one? What was her comment? Notice her comment on that was she said. I was confirmed in all I had stated in Minneapolis that a reformation must go through the churches. Reforms must be made for spiritual weakness and blindness were upon the people who had been blessed with great light and precious opportunities and privileges. She's talking about that conference, that Minneapolis conference, talking about righteousness by faith. Well, she went on to say this, and this is a powerful statement, brothers and sisters. She says, as reformers, they had come out of the denominational churches. What were the denominational churches called? What were they called? Babylon. They were called Babylon. She says they had come out of the denominational churches, but they now act a part similar to that which the churches acted. And look at her closing statement. She says, we hoped that there would not be the necessity for another coming out. Last day events, page 48. We're talking about the Babylonian condition. The people of God became debased. Now, the question is, well, what did this? What, what, what brought on this condition? In fact, did you know that Babylon actually has something? Babylon has something that we're going to call its order of attack. When Babylon had an order of attack, you'll find that it was demonstrated in the literal Babylon. Today, we're living in the time of spiritual Babylon. Amen? But there was a literal Babylon. And the question is, could we learn some lessons from the literal Babylon and how it attacked God's people and understand some things about how spiritual Babylon is trying to attack God's people today? Go to the book of Daniel, chapter one. Let's notice what the Bible says. Daniel, chapter one. Daniel, chapter one. In Daniel, the first chapter, I want you to see what the Bible says as we consider the order of attack that Babylon used. The Bible says in Daniel, chapter one. It says, in the third year of the reign of, the, of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, uh, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. It says, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes. Now, I want you to look carefully at verse 4. It says, children in whom was no blemish, but well favored and skillful in all wisdom and cunning in knowledge and understanding science and such as had ability in them to stand at the king's palace and whom they might do what? Teach the learning uh, and the tongue of the Chaldeans. One of the first orders of attack that Babylon used against the people of God is they said, Give them false education. That was the, what, the first order of attack. Babylon said, give them false education. Now, Babylon had many things that it did. Babylon also said, change their names. Babylon also said, change their diet. 
Babylon did many efforts to try to dissemble the minds of God's people so they would not know even who they are anymore, and therefore they would be easily molded into the image of what King Nebuchadnezzar wanted them to be under the instruction of Satan himself. But it started with false education. King Nebuchadnezzar knew if we're really going to get these guys to follow us, if we're really going to get them to go ahead and do what we want them to do on our behalf, then we must do something. We must teach them, brothers and sisters. We must teach them the learning of the Chaldeans. They understood that. Teach them our ways. Teach them our culture. Teach them all these different things. And brothers and sisters, I'm telling you the truth. If you want to get to a mind, you get to it through education. That's the key. When I think of Israel, Israel rejected Jesus. Is that right? Yes. Did Israel turn away from all sorts of God's truths? Yes, they did. They became very theoretical. They became very philosophical. They, they got caught up into all sorts of debased practices and sins. They got caught up into a lot of stuff, brothers and sisters, that caused their minds to be unfit to recognize Jesus when he was standing right in their face. It started with education. It started with hit them with false education. If I can hit them with false education, then what's going to happen is Proverbs 23 and verse 7. What does the Bible say in Proverbs 23, 7? You see, education reaches the mind, doesn't it? Well, let's notice what the Bible says in Proverbs 23 and verse 7. The Bible says something that is very important for you and I to understand. While there are so many things that we could identify about Babylon, my focus for this presentation is going to be on its system of false education. Notice what the Bible says in Proverbs 23, right there in verse 7. The Bible says this. For as he thinketh in his heart, the word heart means mind. For as he thinketh in his mind, what does the Bible say next? So is he. Whatever goes on in the mind comes out in the character. You remember I was talking to you before about young men that I see in the black community and many of them, they start to walk funny. They start to talk funny. And all these things. Why do they do that? Because of what their minds were subjected to. Why do we see some people in other communities where they look like the latest rock and roll stars? They look like some of the pop artists. They look like some of these groups from heavy metal groups and all these other things. How did that happen? It started because their minds were focusing on something. And as the mind, what was going on in their thoughts eventually developed out in their character. Always remember actions repeated form habits and habits forms character and character determines destiny. And this is why, brothers and sisters, that we must be mindful of what we let get into our minds. That's why God said in Isaiah 26 and verse three, thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on me. King Nebuchadnezzar understood, give them false education. And it is through false education that I will get their mind. And as I get their mind, I control their behaviors. There are a lot of people today, brothers and sisters, who are in God's remnant church, but they are living by the principles of false education, which therefore leads to Babylonian behavior. Go to the book of Isaiah 47, and let's notice something the Bible says. I want you to consider this. Isaiah, the 47th chapter, and, and, and interestingly enough, Isaiah is rebuking and talking about the issues that were taking place with Babylon. This is very interesting to notice this. In Isaiah 47, notice what the Bible says as we consider verse 10. Isaiah 47 and verse 10. Now here's what the Bible says. The Bible says in Isaiah 47 and verse 10, it says, For thou hast trusted in thy wickedness. Now God, again, he's rebuking Babylon. 
He says, for thou hast trusted in thy wickedness. Thou hast said, none seeth me. It says, thy wisdom and thy knowledge, it hath perverted thee. Thy wisdom and thy knowledge, your teachings have done what? It has perverted thee. And it says, and thou hast said in thine heart, I am and none else beside me. It was through the wisdom and knowledge that came from Babylon that it unfortunately perverted the people. It was the false education that was going in their minds that eventually was reflected in their characters. Stephen Haskell, one of our great pioneers, uh, he wrote a book on the story of Daniel. And when he wrote the book on on the story of Daniel, the prophet, page 29, it says in the Babylonish court, this was exemplified. Nebuchadnezzar and his counselors, the wise men, astrologers and soothsayers on one side represented the education of the world. It says Nebuchadnezzar and his astrologers and his soothsayers, they represented the what? Education of the world. And as a result of that, it says Daniel, a youth, not over 21 years of age, a Hebrew and a slave was chosen by God to confound the wisdom of the mighty. It was through false education, brothers and sisters, that the devil was able to work upon the minds of God's people. And therefore, what was going on in the mind eventually came out in the behavior. Are you following? Now, Ellen White says something about this that I thought was very powerful. She says, after the return, this is from Desire of Ages, page 29. After the return from Babylon, much attention was given to religious instruction. It says all over the country, synagogues were erected where the law was expounded by the priests and scribes and schools were established. Now, listen to this. Schools were established. It says which together with the arts and sciences. This is talking about Greek mythology that started to come in amongst God's people. It started to come into God's schools. It says And schools were established, which together with the arts and sciences professed to teach the principles of righteousness. But these agencies became what? Corrupted. Corrupted. It says during the captivity, many of the people had received heathen ideas and customs, and these were brought into their religious service. In many things, they conformed to the practices of idolaters. Literally, it was amazing. It was like God's people, because they came out of heathenism, Babylon, and here it is, they brought a lot of the Babylonian teachings. Now, let's notice something about Rome. Go to the book of Revelation chapter 13. Revelation the 13th chapter, because this is a very important point here. I pray that you're following, and I want you to pray for yourselves that you're following. Because this is very important because we're about to get very practical with this situation. I'm showing you the foundation so that we can get ready to go into the meat. Notice what it says. Revelation 13. In verse 1 it says, And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. Now, this beast is who? Now, you know the reason I'm asking you is because I already told you. We did this in another study. Who is is this beast right here being spoken of? Well, it's not the devil. Satan is working through them. That's true. But that's not the exact beast. Remember I told you Daniel saw four beasts in Daniel 7? The first one was Babylon. It was like a lion. The next one was Medo-Persia. It was like a bear. The next one was Greece, and it was like a leopard. And then the next one was Rome, and it was like this indescribed beast. Daniel couldn't find an animal to compare it to because it was that savage. Now, here it is that... There is a beast that is spoken of here in Revelation 13. 
Maybe verse 2 will help you know who this beast is. What does it say about the beast in verse 2? And the beast which I saw was like unto what? A leopard. The leopard represented who? Greece. It says, and his feet were as the feet of a bear. The bear represented who? Medo-Persia. Then it says, and his mouth was as the mouth of a lion. Who was, li- who was the lion? Babylon. Now, Babylon has been named, Greece has been named, and Medo-Persia has been named. So what's the only kingdom that hasn't been named? Rome. So therefore, if it says that this beast in verse 1 is like a leopard, has the feet like a bear and the mouth like a lion, then who is that first beast? I'm going to be silent. I'm not talking anymore until you answer. Who is the first beast? I'm serious. I'm not going to. What's the point of going further in education if we can't understand the simple purposes of what we just studied? I'm serious. I will literally stop the study. Who if the if the beast looks like a leopard. If it also is like a lion. If it is also like a bear, that's three. There's only one more left. Who could that other beast be? Rome. Thank you, brethren. Thank you. Bless your hearts. Thank you. I'm serious. Thank you. (laughs) we have to think brothers and sisters we just got to think we got to apply our minds we got to apply our minds the bible says that rome is like the leopard it is if there is an animal that rome is like the most it is like greece the children of israel when jesus came on the scene They were living in the time of Rome. And Rome is leopard-like. So therefore, through the educational system, they brought Greek mythology to God's people. And it was through Greek mythology that it unfit the minds of God's people, that when the Savior came in their face, they couldn't even recognize him. False education is deadly. We are told... The city of Athens was the metropolis of heathendom. Where's Athens? Just from a geography standpoint, all right, Greece. (laughs) It says the city of Athens was the metropolis of heathendom. It says the apostle was not deceived by that which he saw in this center of learning. As he saw the magnificence of Athens, he realized its seductive power over lovers of art and science, and his mind was deeply impressed with the importance of the work before him. He saw that the influence of Greek education was affecting God's people and it was affecting the world. Now, why do I bring these points up? Because, brothers and sisters, the same way God's people were not able to recognize Jesus, not understand prophecy, not be able to understand doctrine, the reason why God's people were caught up in so much debased practices and sin, in other words, the reason why God's people were caught up in so much Babylonian behavior, it was directly connected to the false education they were subjecting their minds to. I hope you understand why I said every young person, I believe, should be hearing this. There are many of us today who have put our children in environments that we don't understand, those environments are designed to steal Jesus from their minds. These environments are designed 
to make sure you do not understand present truth and you don't understand these three angels' messages and you certainly will not experience it. There is a plan that Satan put together to make sure you won't make it. And Satan repeats his efforts because he has so much success. And what does he do? He does the order of attack. What was Babylon's order of attack? Give them false education. And today that's what's happening to so many of God's people. My heart goes out to our young people. I am serious. I want you to listen to this. The focus of false education, when, when, you, when you think about the focus of false education, notice what the Bible says in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis, the third chapter, I want you to notice what the Bible says. Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses uh, 1 to 6. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. The focus of false education. I want you to look at this. You remember that Satan, he obviously is having a dialogue with Eve. I don't know why Eve is talking to a serpent, but nevertheless, she is. And here it is. The Bible says, now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. I want you to look at the method of Satan and how he tries to get us. He says, yea, hath God said, the very tone of his voice has a tone of something. What would you call it? Who said that? Beautiful answer. His tone of voice had the essence or the sound of doubt in it. Yea, hath God said, thou shalt not eat of the tree? And look at what he says next. And, and or rather he says, and the woman said unto the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, ye shall not eat it, neither shall ye touch it lest ye die. And verse 4 says, and the serpent said unto the woman, you shall not surely die. And he told a lie. Years later, Satan meets Jesus. Go to Matthew 4. Years later, Satan meets Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 4, he then does something here. In Matthew the fourth chapter, now let's notice what the Bible says here. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 4, Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If. Thou be the son of God, seed of doubt. If thou be the son of God, maybe you are, maybe you're not. If thou be the son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, it is what? Written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. False education is typically built upon doubt. False education is built upon doubt. Plant the seeds of doubt. Oh, that's not really true. The word of God says thus and so. We believe it. We stand on it. But then we bump into someone and someone says, well, eh, I don't know if that's really true. We don't even realize that many times we're echoing the voice of Satan and we don't even see it. It's amazing when somebody can puppeteer us like that, that we become his puppet, his servant. And we don't even realize it because today you're hearing like never before amongst the people of God, you are hearing this seed of doubt. Well, it goes on to tell us this. In the Encyclopedia Britannica, there was a statement that was made. It's, it was in the article Socrates states. This is what Socrates states. 
It says, before I ever met you, says Minyo in the dialogue with Plato, called by his name, I was told that you spent your time in what? Doubting. You spent your time in doubting. And it says, and leading others to what? Doubt. Now, remember, this is Greek education. Greek education, brothers and sisters, has affected every school system in the planet Earth today. Now, listen to this. It says, before I ever met you, says Minyo in the dialogue with Plato called by his name, I was told that you spent your time in doubting and leading others to doubt. And it is a fact that your witcheries and spells have brought me to that condition. It says, talking about Wilson Misner, you should look him up. He was a very well-known and well-respected in his sphere in education. Will Misner said, I respect faith, but doubt is what gets you an education. Doubt. You see, all these things connect back to none other than what started at that tree of life, or rather the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In fact, I want you to consider this. Well, before we go there, consider this. I want you to look at this. It says in the General Conference Daily Bulletin, March 6, 1899, when Adam and Eve had an option either to eat from the tree of life, but then it also says, do not eat from the tree of what? The knowledge of good and evil. Now, listen to what inspiration says about that tree of the knowledge of good and evil as well as the tree of life. Did you know that Adam and Eve's garden was also a classroom? It says the Garden of Eden was not only Adam's dwelling, but his schoolroom. As in that school, so in the school of earth today, two trees are planted. The tree of life, which bears the fruit of the true education and the tree of knowledge, yielding the fruit of science, falsely so-called. So the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a actual pictorial or representation of false education. And they chose to partake of it and it brought sin and death. Are you following? Because whatever you let in the mind is going to affect you in your character. Now, the school systems of the day, they were also made up under the false educational system. True education is found in John 17. Go to John 17. Let's look at the contrast very quickly. John, the 17th chapter. In John, the 17th chapter, we find the very essence of true education. It is found in John, the 17th chapter, and we can look at it right here in verse 3. In John 17 and verse 3, the foundation of all true education is this. It says, and this is what? Life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. True education is based on the mental, physical, spiritual development of the individual that they may know God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. That is the foundation of true education. In Child Guidance, page 293, it says the first great lesson in all education is to know and understand the will of God. So many parents get caught up into book learning. And they begin to get their children to become, quote unquote, geniuses. And all that's typically happening in a lot of homes today is we're teaching our children how to become intelligent sinners. God says, why can't you just teach them how to become intelligent saints? That's what true education was supposed to do. But false education, it'll make our children intelligent. They're brilliant people in this world today, brothers and sisters. I don't doubt that. I don't deny that. There are brilliant people in this world. But the problem is, is many of them are brilliant sinners. That's all. And, they, and many of them are using their brilliance to come up 
with the newest and latest debases, the most debased sins and sinful practices. Well, there was a system behind all of this. You see, when this principle of false education that we just read about here, then there were schools that were built upon it. Let me give you an example. You know what school this is? You probably don't know what school that is. Well, this school is none other than Yale University. You ever heard somebody say, send your child to Yale? You know, a lot of people say this is where you need to send them. Well, I want to show you something about Yale University. Yale University, here's what it says. In Education in the United States, page 24, a wonderful book that was bringing out uh, the foundation of many of these schools, it says the regulations for the most part were those at Harvard as also the courses of study. So in other words, Yale The school of schools, the place where uh, when a parent sends their child there, a parent gloats over it, sticks out their chest because they say, my child is at Yale. Yale got many of its regulations and their courses of study from where? Harvard. I wonder where Harvard got their education from. Notice it says this is none other than Harvard University. Now. Harvard University obviously gave Yale their inspiration. But uh, let's look at something about Harvard. It says President Dunster patterned the Harvard course largely after that of the English universities. So in other words, Yale, they got their courses of study and everything from Harvard. Harvard got theirs from the English universities. When we think of the English universities, we especially think of none other, brothers and sisters, than we think of William and Mary. That was known as the wonderful English universities. William and Mary was considered the English universities of English universities. But I wonder where William and Mary got their inspiration for their courses of study. Let's notice. All were of English pattern. Oxford, Cambridge, Eton, Rugby and Westminster. So all of their course of study they got from the English pattern like Oxford and Cambridge and many others. So therefore, when we think of that, we think about none other than we look at, of course, Oxford and Cambridge. But the question is, I wonder where Oxford and Cambridge and the other universities got their inspiration for their courses of study. Let's notice. It says Oxford and Cambridge modeled themselves largely after what? Paris. This is getting interesting. We're connecting some things. So they get their inspiration from Paris. Let's notice something about, brothers and sisters, the University of Paris. I wonder where the University of Paris got the inspiration for their courses of study. Let's notice. It says under the rise and constitution of universities, page 242, it says it was because it, the University of Paris, was the center of theological learning that it received so many privileges from the Pope and was kept in close relation to the papal see. And the Bible says that Rome was what like? Leopard like. Greek mythology false education. Brothers and sisters, the universities of today that many parents are gloating over when they send their children there, they are sending their children to receive none other than Babylonian education. And when they receive Babylonian education, brothers and sisters, comes out Babylonian behavior. 
No wonder it was a man by the name of E.A. Sutherland used by God in the Seventh-day Adventist church when he was the stalwart when it came to true education, Christian education. It was E.A. Sutherland who wrote in his book, Studies in Christian Education, that he stated a quotation from Rome on page 20 where Rome says, let me teach a child until he is 12 years old, says the Catholics, and he will always remain a Catholic. Rome says... I got you. When you come to my school and you subject your mind to my teachings, whoever has the mind has the man. And brothers and sisters, Rome is leopard like. And this is why God is trying to educate our minds to help us understand that we have allowed false education to come in our midst. And it is defecting our minds to the point that we don't appreciate Bible truth anymore. And you know, one of the number one reasons why it's amazing how it's amazing how many children today can go to Christian schools and leave doubting Christ. That's interesting. In other words, this is not something that is just existing in the public schools, even though the public schools are absolutely deadly, brothers and sisters. Let me tell you something. If somebody came to you with an investment project, let's say we have an investment project, and somebody said to you, hey, give me every penny in your savings account Give me every penny of what you have. And there's a 50% chance that I will double it. But there's a 50% chance you'll lose everything that you had. How many of you would take that investment? 50% chance that it will be doubled, but a 50% chance you'll lose everything. How many of us would take that investment? Nobody. Okay, question. Let's say somebody comes back to you and they say, all right, give me every penny in your bank account. And what I'm going to do is there's going to be a 70% chance that I will double everything that you have in your bank account. But there's a 30% chance you'll lose everything you have. How many of you would take that investment? He upped it to 70%. Nobody. He comes back one more time. He says, all right, I have a deal you just can't refuse. He says, give me every penny in your bank account. Give me every bit of money you have, whether it's in a piggy bank, a bank account under your mattress, your pillow, wherever it is. Give it to me. He says there's a 95% chance that I will double your money. But there's a 5% chance you'll lose everything you have. How many of you would take that investment? Okay, one. One, one person would. One person. Appreciate your honesty, too. Appreciate your honesty. She says, look, 95%. The majority of us say no. All right. Now, do you know, brothers and sisters, that most Seventh-day Adventists today, most of the Christian, so-called Christian world today, do you know we love our money more than our children? You know why? We will not even take a 5% chance of losing our money. But when we put our children in school environments where we know false education is being taught, there is more than a 5%, more than a 30%. Brothers and sisters, there's more than a 50% chance that your child is going to leave that school doubting Christ and his truth. And we will sooner send our children to these schools and put them under the education of Philistines. 
but we would dare not even take a 5% chance with our own money. Many of us love our money more than our children. There's something wrong with this. We're taking, we're taking risks. We're gambling with our youth, brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. I'm going to share this story with you because I pray that it will empower you. My wife and I, when we had our children, we realized that homeschooling was God's instruction. I was not making a lot of money. I was a counselor dealing with people who were mentally disabled and what was called duly diagnosed. And brothers and sisters, though it is a noble service, it pays horrible. And here it is that my wife now is we have four children. The easiest thing for me to do was say, honey, go to work. We'll find a daycare or some other place and let somebody else raise our children for a while. And we'll just go ahead and uh, and 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 make money and, and pay our mortgages and pay our bills and do and live the American way. But we will go into God's instructions. We read the Bible. We read the spirit of prophecy. It says the, the, the first eight to ten years of that child's life need to be spent at home where the mother is the teacher. The home and nature should be their classroom, the Bible, their textbook. And so it is that we said, Father, we dare to take on that challenge. So we did. And my wife, even though she, she was aspiring to be a nurse, she, it was her dream to be a nurse. But she surrendered that dream so she could go ahead and give the children the best that they could get. Well, here it is that she started to do that, and we ended up relocating to Georgia. And I remember we made a, we made a deal with, with, with uh, our relatives who were living in Georgia. We said, listen, we're going to come to Georgia. We're going to buy our house. This was the first time we were going to buy a house. We went to Georgia. We were going to buy a house and 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 we told our relatives, we said, we're going to ask you because our relatives homeschooled their children. We said, we're going to ask you to homeschool our children. My wife is going to work. I'm going to work so we can go ahead and live the American way. Well, we moved down uh, to Georgia. We bought our house. The people put the keys in our hands. Congratulations, Mr. and Mrs. Lemon. You are now homeowners. And we were so excited. We owned our first home. Well, here it is that we go to pick up our children from our relatives. And you know what our relatives decided to say? They said, you know what? The Lord has impressed us that we should not take care of your children and that you need to do it. Now, we said, wait a minute. We made a deal. We bought a house. We have to pay for that house now. You said you were going to watch them. My wife has to work. So they said, look, I'm sorry, but we're going to have God has told us to let you know you need to watch your children. I said, but what about this, this purchase of the house? They said, that has to be your problem now. I remember we left that house and I was perplexed. I'm driving on the road and I'm perplexed. I'm like, what are we going to do now? I can't give back the house. That house is mine. And we had to make a decision. All right, do we put our children in, 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 you know, and I'm leaving New York. So New York, I got a great salary. I'm coming down to Georgia. I had to take a uh, $25,000 per year cut. And I got a very humble job. Well, here it is that I'm thinking to myself, how in the world? Are we going to take care of this house, take care of our children and so on? And my wife is not going to work now. And for a split second, we actually thought, well, we live in a little town. Maybe the public school is not so bad. And as you know, one of the things I love about studying the Bible. When you fill your mind with the word of God. When it is appropriate, God will bring things back up into your mind to get you back on the straight and narrow path. As soon as I started to say, well, maybe we'll just go ahead and put him in public school. All of a sudden, uh, the Lord just started bringing back every Bible verse and every spirit of prophecy quote to my mind. And I said, I can't do it. And I couldn't violate my conscience. I told my wife, I said, honey, we're just going to have to trust the Lord. 
I didn't even have a job at that point. I ended up finding a job, $25,000 cut per year. And I'm thinking, how are we going to make it? And next thing you know, but we trust in God. We had to do what God says. Because most people sell out on their children because of finances. That's why I'm saying what I'm saying to you. Brothers and sisters, I have no idea how we made it through that year. It was a miracle. I'm talking about fishes and loaves because I know that I was not making enough money to provide food, gas, pay insurance, mortgage, and the list goes on. There was no way that I was making that kind of money. But somehow God multiplied it because of faithfulness. And guess what? My manager was so happy with me at that job that he said, Dwayne, he said, I'm very pleased with the work that you have done. And he says, and I'm letting you know that I'm leaving the company. And I said, really? And he was a wonderful manager. He said, I'm leaving the company. I said, really? He said, yep, I'm going to go away and I'm going to go to another organization. And he says, and as soon as the first opportunity comes for me to hire, he says, you're my first pick. I said, you know what? Thanks a lot. He literally told me, he said, Dwayne, I believe God sent you to this company for you to meet me so you could share Jesus with me and I can empower you financially. That was his words. Because I studied with him as my manager. I gave him a Bible readings for the home. We'd always talk about the Bible and everything else. And he says, I believe God sent you to bring me to Jesus. And God sent me to help you financially any way I can. He says, when I move over to this other company, the first opening I'm bringing you. Do you know within two months, he called me. He said, there's an opening. You're my number one guy. Come on over. He brought me over, brothers and sisters. Shortly after I came over there, I made literally five times the amount of money I made in New York. God blessed faithfulness. Are you hearing me? Today, that job is history. This is my job now. Now God has graduated me and he said, now I need you full time for me. And now he's pulled me into full time work. And that's all that I do now. Everybody says, what's your income? My income is Matthew chapter 20, verse 4. You know, what Matthew 20, verse 4 says, whatsoever is right is what I'll give you. That's my income. That's my annual salary, whatever's right. And God has been faithful to us over the years. And I'm telling you, many parents do not put their children in the right environments because they're fearful of what's going to happen financially. Brothers and sisters, if God wills it, you have nothing to fear. Do what God says. Because today we're losing a lot, not just of children in the world, we're losing a lot of Seventh-day Adventist children because of the environments that we're putting them in. Now I'm going to close on some of these points here. It's already 11 o'clock. We have only until 12. I want to take 15 more minutes and I want to close on these thoughts here. We're going to take a 10 minute pause and then we're going to go further. And we may not. I wanted to go through the experience of the third angel. But brothers and sisters, sometimes it's more important to just study what you're studying and let the people get it and just leave the other message for another day when the Lord opens another door for it. So don't be surprised if we don't get to go into the experience of the third angel because we need to get this thing. This is a burden. This is a serious burden because I didn't even start this message yet. I'm about to get real deep with you now. Are you following? Listen to me, brothers and sisters. Watch this. There comes a point in time when individuals may have to go to the schools. But the question is, when is it time to attend the schools? Now, I'm going to talk to you, brothers and sisters. Remember Desire of Ages 29. It showed that the children of Israel brought the Greek education into their religious services. So some of you may be saying, well, Brother Lemon, you were talking about 
the public schools, and I was, but I'm not limiting it to the public schools. Do you know what the purpose of the seven-day Adventist school system was for? Write this down, please. Manuscript release, book one. You're putting MR book one, page 228. This is the clearest statement of the purpose of Seventh-day Adventist schools. The inspiration says, manuscript release, MR, book one, page 228. It says in manuscript release, book one, page 228, it says God's purpose in giving the third angel's message is to prepare a people to stand true to him during the investigative judgment. Now, let's try to repeat that. I'm going to say it, and I want us to repeat it, please, because I pray that this will be ingrained in your mind. I'm going to repeat it. God's purpose in giving the third angel's message is to prepare a people to stand true to him during the investigative judgment. One more time. God's purpose in giving the third angel's message is to prepare a people to stand true to him during the investigative judgment. Try it with me. God's purpose in giving the third angel's message is to prepare a people to stand true to him during the investigative judgment. One more time. God's purpose in giving the third angel's message is to prepare a people to stand true to him during the investigative judgment. Now, here's where it gets deep. While it says God's purpose is to prepare a people to stand true to him during the investigative judgment. Brothers and sisters, I'm here to let you know that it says, listen to this quote. I am quoting manuscript release, book one, page 228. This is what it says. This is the purpose for which we establish and maintain our publishing houses, and our schools. What is the purpose of a seven-day Adventist school? To prepare a people to stand true to God during the investigative judgment. The purpose of the seventh-day Adventist educational system is not to give people degrees. That was not our purpose. If it's a fringe benefit, so be it. But quite honestly, if you really study this whole accreditation issue, that's when we really got ourselves in most of the trouble we're in today. Because once you go accredited, now you got to do things the way the world says it too. And that's just a fact. And that's where we are today. That's a fact. No one can deny that. They may not like that, but it's a fact. Once you say, world, we're going to start doing things your way, the world says, fine, you let us in, we now have a right to give some instructions. That's what's happening. All right. Now, follow with me, because I am not saying while I am saying what I am saying, I'm not saying that you cannot go to a seven day Adventist school or should not go to a seven day Adventist school. I'm not going to go that far. And you want to know why? Because inspiration doesn't go that far. I'm going to show you what Ellen White says is even the appropriate time to go to public schools. You mean the testimony of Jesus actually says that there's a time we could even go to public schools? Yes. I'm going to show you. 
And if God will send us to public schools, I know he'll send us to Seventh-day Adventist schools. But brothers and sisters, the purpose, the purpose of the Seventh-day Adventist school system was to prepare people to stand true to God during the investigative judgment. Do you know today it is possible that individuals can come to a Seventh-day Adventist school and not even learn about the judgment or leave doubting the judgment? You know how many people are doing that? We have schools today, brothers and sisters, listen to me. We have schools today where people are openly teaching evolution. Brothers and sisters, those people should be fired. You can love somebody and fire them. Jesus loved every angel that he had to remove from heaven. God will love every individual who even burns in the lake of fire. God never stops loving them. But God knows there's a time and a place where we have to remove certain individuals. Brothers and sisters, it is an indictment on us and God's curse is upon us on the fact that we will still pay people to teach our youth false education. Brothers and sisters, that's a sin. That's a sin. And so I am not the one that will come to individuals and say, oh, just go ahead and go to an SDA school. No, brothers and sisters, I'm telling you. You got to really think it through where God is sending you. Because it's not just the public school systems that are in bad shape. Even God's church is in bad shape when it comes to our school system. We have allowed false education to hit many of our curriculums. And there are some people today that simply say, as long as it says SDA, then it's all right. Brothers and sisters, that's a lie. Not everything that says Israel is Israel. Why do you think I showed you that verse? Not everyone who says they are Israel are Israel. And we cannot be so much of a team player that even when we do things that are flat out wrong and against the Bible and spirit of prophecy, that we go ahead and say, well, to be a team player, let's just go ahead and send our children there anyhow. But we won't even take a 5% risk on our money. How could we do that? Brothers and sisters, God says we need to start rethinking. We need to start rethinking. So I am not just talking about the public school system. That's not it. I'm also talking about even our school system. Today, brothers and sisters, it is possible to graduate from a seven-day Adventist school and know nothing about the investigative judgment. How is it that Great Controversy, page 366, says that children as young as six and eight years old were able to repeat the herald of the first angel's message? Today, you go to the average teenager in the Seventh-day Adventist church and say, tell me the three angels' messages, and they know nothing. But they're in the school system. What in the world are we teaching them? We want to be so much like the world when the world has nothing to offer. It is not that God cannot give us careers. It is not that God cannot call us into various vocations. Yes, God will do that. But brothers and sisters, there's a time to go to the schools. So therefore, the question is, when is it time to attend these schools where we know that there's error being taught in it? And again, I'm even talking about a Seventh-day Adventist school. There are some Seventh-day Adventist schools that have given a great demonstration. I remember I was at one of them. I went to one of our schools in Arkansas, and I was there, and I was working with the young people there. And as I was working there with those young people, I was amazed. I was looking at the curriculum. I looked at the environment. It was in the country. I looked at the things the children were learning. They were learning vocational skills. They were learning how to use their hands. 
the ladies were learning how to prepare food, how to cook. The guys were learning things like mechanical work, and the list goes on, engineering, media. They were actually learning trades. I sat in some of their classes, and they were going meticulously through the Bible, verse by verse, and understanding truth. And even when they did math and science and history, they were able to do math in a way where it still could go ahead and get the mind on Jesus. As an example, they would give a math equation to say, how many gallons of blood does the heart beat per hour? So therefore, they had to do a mathematical calculation, but guess what they're also learning? Physiology. Do you get it? This is what true education was all about. That's why education page 195 says that all says that the understanding of physiology should be the basis of all education, all education, education, page 195. It says that understanding physiology should be the basis. Another word for basis is foundation. It should be the foundation for all educational effort. So here it is, you're getting them to calculate how many gallons the heart pumps of blood in a period of time, but they're studying physiology to get the answer. They're learning math, physiology, and the glory of God all at the same time. True education. When is it time to go into an environment where false education may actually be there? One of the ways we know is go to the book of Daniel chapter 1. In Daniel chapter 1, let's find out. When is it time to go into an environment where there may be false education? People say, Brother Lemon, now, are you saying that we, shouldn't, we should all be ministers? We should, there's no doctors or nurses. There's no uh, mechanics and lawyers. Or God. No, that's not what I'm saying. I couldn't say that because inspiration doesn't say that. You read the book Education under the chapter The Life Works, starting at page 262. That's a chapter every single one of you should read, especially as a young person. The Life Work, Education, page 262. But on page 267, Ellen White makes it clear. She says, look, God has not called everybody into ministry. She said there's some people God has called into various vocations. Now, granted, we're going to have to learn how to be an attorney, which means we may have to end up at a Harvard, maybe at a Yale, or maybe at some other public school system. Maybe we might end up at a public school system to learn certain vocational skills so we can fulfill the specific call God has made in our lives. But the question is not, should we go? We can go, but the question is, when? When do we go into school environments where we know that their curriculum and the behavior of the majority of the students is going to be against God and his truth? When do we go? Well, we get a picture through Daniel chapter 1. Notice what the Bible says in Daniel chapter 1. In Daniel chapter 1 and verse 4, the Bible says, children, remember king, uh, rather, let's go to verse 3. And the king spake unto Ashenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom and cunning in knowledge and understanding science and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace and whom they might teach the learning of the tongue of the Chaldeans. Notice the kind of children Nebuchadnezzar wanted. These were children that he was looking for that were already well-developed. These individuals always already had understanding of the sciences. They already had an education. They already had a foundation. They already exemplified noble characters. They already exemplified a level of maturity. 
God in his wisdom knew I am not going to let Daniel and my three faithfuls enter into Babylon until I first help them mature and develop a strong foundation. God knew I'm not going to send them there. I'm not going to let them go there until there is a development in them that they'll be able to stand in the midst of the apostasy. When is it time to send our children to the schools? When is it time to let them go? Whether it be a Seventh-day Adventist school, but it has apostasy in it, or whether it be a regular public school or otherwise. When do we send them? If we send them, let's notice. Those who attend us public schools often associate with others more neglected than they. Those who, aside from the time spent in the schoolroom, are left to obtain a street education. It says the hearts of the young are easily impressed. Parents, you're supposed to know your young people. If you know you got a child that is easily impressed, you want to be careful where you send them. It says, the hearts of the young are easily impressed, and unless their surroundings are of the right character, Satan will use these neglected children to influence those who are more carefully trained. Literally, Satan has his servants ready in the schools to, un- to unfit or to take away from our children when we put them in the schools uh, all of the wonderful teachings that they've learned in the home and at the church. So you'll find that when you send your child to a public school, you want to be careful because you know through inspiration that Satan has a plan. It goes on to say, thus, before Sabbath keeping parents know what is being done, the lessons of depravity are learned and the souls of their little ones are corrupted. Do you know most of our young people today who practice the debased sins that they do? It came from associations. It came from who they were talking to, who they were hanging out with and who they were spending a lot of time with. This is how young ladies start to lose their virginity very quickly. This is how the young men, they give up their virginity very quickly. This is how people begin to eat things they shouldn't eat when they were taught at home to eat right. But a friend said, oh, come on, go ahead. And they gave into the pressure. The pressure of the associations consistently breaks down the youth. It's Satan's plan. He says, I'm going to kill him. I want to take this truth away from them. And that's what he's going to do. So part of it is the association factor. But let's go on. It says you cannot teach them the commandments of God, the law of God and importance of the law in a public school. They can't be taught these things. All right. By the way, that was this is manuscript release, book six, page 370. Let me pull back that other quote. And the other quote dealing with the children. It says that was coming from Councils to Teachers, page 173. So the one where the children learn the street education, bad influences, that's Councils to Teachers, page 173. And then the statement that says you cannot teach them the commandments of God, the law of God, and importance of the law in a public school, that's Manuscript Release, book 6, page 370. God warns us that your children are not going to be able to learn these things there. All right? Now, It says some fathers and mothers are so indifferent, so careless that they think it makes no difference where their children attend a church school or a public school. We are in the world, they say, and we cannot get out of it. Do you know how many people say that? Jesus said we are to be in the world, but not of it. They they use these type of excuses. They say we are in the world. And they say we cannot get out of it. But parents, we can get a good way out of the world if we choose to do so. It says we can avoid seeing many of the evils that are multiplying so fast in these last days. We can avoid hearing about much of the wickedness and crime that exists. Adventist home page 406. So now let's notice the schools of the prophets were founded by Samuel to serve as a barrier 
against the widespread corruption to provide for the moral and spiritual welfare of the youth and to promote the future prosperity of the nation by furnishing it with men qualified to act in the fear of God as leaders and counselors. Patriarchs and Prophets 593. You know, one of the great mistakes that we find often in our churches is that even in our church schools, we will hire teachers that literally by their lifestyle and many a times their teachings contradict the very standards of true education. You can't do that. If the school is supposed to provide a certain kind of education that creates barriers against the widespread corruptions of the world, then that means that we need to make sure that teachers are there that also reflect those principles. If you got a teacher that's coming to church half naked, brothers and sisters, that's the wrong teacher to bring to an Adventist school. They don't belong there. They don't belong there. Because how, listen, especially here in California, uh, especially on Southern California, do you see how many reports are constantly coming out about teachers and students getting together? Are you noticing that being reported? What do you think that stuff comes from? It comes from typically how people dress themselves. We're going to talk about dress reform tomorrow. Tomorrow morning when we talk about John's life, we're going to talk about that dress reform question because we need to deal with it. But brothers and sisters, we must understand that the teachers must exemplify the principles of the school. So therefore, if the schools were designed to serve as a barrier against widespread corruption and to provide moral and spiritual welfare, this is what the teachers should be reflecting in their person, in their attitude, and in what they teach. It also says to promote the future prosperity of the nation. Now, today, that would mean to promote the future prosperity of the church. That's why teachers in a Seventh-day Adventist school should be Seventh-day Adventists. They shouldn't be of any other denominations because the other denominations are not trying to promote and build up the church. They're just there to get their job and get their paycheck. They could care less Seventh-day Adventists or not. They're there to get their job and their paycheck. We say, oh, we're trying to witness to them. Brothers and sisters, you can witness to people without putting them in leadership positions. Oh, please, let's stop using that excuse. Often we say, oh, we're trying to witness to them. That's why we allow them to come and teach our people apostasy. That's ridiculous. You will never find that in the Bible, the spirit of prophecy. Never. Our goal and our mission is to win souls to Jesus, but not by putting them in position so they can teach us their heresy. That makes no sense. So let's notice now. Just to let you know that what I have said in relation to our schools, I've learned that a minister should only speak what God speaks. Amen? Amen. You will find that the same way that God moved Ellen White to actually say something. Did you know Battle Creek was one of our schools? But Battle Creek got so bad because of bad leadership in it that look at what Ellen White had to say. This is from, uh, I think this is Spalding and McGann, page 35. It says, some think it's strange that I write, do not send your children to Battle Creek. You know, Ellen White told people, told parents, don't send your children to Battle Creek, one of our schools. She said, don't send them there. Why did she say that? She says, I was instructed. Well, that's first of all, she was instructed by God. We are instructed by God by his word. Now, it says, I was instructed in regard to the danger of the worldly influence in Battle Creek. It says, I have written hundreds of pages regarding the danger of having so large a sanitarium and of calling so many people together in one place. The young people in Battle Creek are in danger. They will come in contact with error. Do you see that? Now, I want you to follow what we just read. The prophet of God literally said, 
Do not send your children to a school because errors being taught there. Are you following? Are you following? So then that means that when we can clearly see that any school, even if it goes by the name of Seventh-day Adventist, if they clearly are declaring we teach evolution here, we have every right to say, do not send your children to that school. Do not send your children there. We have every right to say that based on the example of inspiration. If we see that there's a deliberate, literal teaching against it, I'm not talking about some professor that's just wishy-washy. That person still needs to be let go. But you may still be able to send a child to the school. But when the school says it is part of our curriculum, when the school says at orientation to parents, we teach this. We teach evolution. When a school says that, brothers and sisters, do not send your children to such a school. Are you following? And if that school is not careful, they're going to have the same experience like Battle Creek very soon and burn down to the ground. You watch. God will not be mocked forever, brothers and sisters. God is a patient, long-suffering, merciful God, but he will not be mocked forever. Sooner or later, God says, mercy must cease and judgment must begin. Pray for our brethren. It goes on to say, now, when do you send your children into the school? This is where we'll close. We're going to close here and we're done. I'm not going to do the third angel because we won't have time, but that's all right. You just keep studying. You get the, you get the point. Amen? You get the point. The Waldensians entered the schools. This is from Third Selected Messages, page 233. The Waldensian children. It says the Waldensians entered the schools of the world as students. So what kind of schools did they enter? The schools of the world. This is actually history. It's just recorded by the servant of the Lord. It says the Waldensians entered the schools of the world as students. They made no pretensions, apparently, uh, no pretensions. Apparently, they paid no attention to anyone, but they lived out what they believed. Now, if you are in a school and God sent you there, then it says that you are not to give all this attention to anybody. Live out what you believe. It says they never sacrificed principle and their principles soon became known. This was different from anything anything the other students had seen, and they began to ask themselves, what does this all mean? Why cannot these men be induced to swerve from their principles? Can you imagine somebody says that about you in a school? They go to you and they say, hey, you want to go ahead and, 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 and you know, talk about things we shouldn't talk about? And you say, no, no, thank you. I, I prefer not to be in that conversation. Hey, there's going to be a party. Why don't you come over here to the party? No, that's all right. I prefer not to go to the party. Hey, why don't you go ahead and let's talk about this and do that and so on. Nope, no thank you. After a while, what are the people going to do? They're going to say, why cannot we persuade these men or induce them to swerve from their principles? It says, while they were considering this, they heard them praying in their rooms. When's the last time as a student somebody seen you praying in your classroom? When's the last time somebody saw you in school, Seventh-day Adventist, public, otherwise, when they saw you praying? And pleading with God, not because a bell rang, not because the people said it's time to pray, but because your heart loves to commune with Jesus. When's the last time somebody saw that? It says, while they were considering this, they heard them praying in their rooms, not to the Virgin Mary, but to the Savior, whom they addressed as the only mediator between God and man. It says the worldly students were encouraged to make inquiries. And as the simple story of the truth as it is in Jesus was told, their minds grasped it. Notice. 
Listen to when we send them to the schools. Here's a direct statement. It says in Third Selected Messages 233, these things I tried to present at Harbor Heights. It was an, edu- an educational convention in 1891. Look at this carefully. Those who have the Spirit of God, who have the truth wrought into their very being, should be encouraged to enter colleges and live the truth as Daniel and Paul did. You mean to tell me that the servant of the Lord actually said that there's a time that we should encourage people to go into worldly schools? Yes. But did you notice the prerequisite? Who have the spirit of God, who have the truth wrought into their very beings. Those are the ones that it says should be encouraged to enter colleges and live the truth as Daniel and Paul did. It says each one should study to see what is the best way to get the truth into the school that the light may shine forth. Why are they going to the school? To get the truth into the school. So therefore, the school becomes the missionary field. Uh huh. Now, it says, let them show that they respect all the rules and regulations of the school. The leaven will begin to work, for we can depend much more on, upon the power of God manifested in the lives of his children than upon any words that can be spoken, but they should also tell inquirers in as simple language as they can of the simple Bible doctrines. Now, watch this. We're almost done. Watch this. There are those who, after becoming established, please look at these statements. There are those who, after becoming established, rooted and grounded in the truth, should enter these institutions of learning as students. So when do we send them into the school? It says after becoming established, rooted and grounded in the truth. That's when you send your children into a school environment where you know apostasy and error is in it. That child must demonstrate that. If they don't, don't send them. Because what's going to happen? They're going to get swallowed up by the environment. And how many times, how many hundreds of thousands of perhaps millions of Seventh-day Adventist youth today have been swallowed up by the devil because they were put in an environment where they were not established and rooted and grounded in the truth. And the powers that be swallowed them up. How many times? How many times? Notice. The students need not go to these institutions of learning in order to become enlightened upon theological subjects. In other words, they're not going there to learn about God's word and God's truth. It says, for the teachers of the school need themselves to become Bible students. It is possible that that can be somewhat applicable even in an SDA environment. There are many professors who may not understand these truths. That's present truth. And many a time students are educating professors, teachers, and others. It says the students need not to go to these institutions of learning in order to become enlightened upon theological subjects, for the teachers of the school need themselves to become Bible students. No open controversy should be started, yet opportunity will be given to ask questions upon Bible doctrines, and light will be flashed into many minds. A spirit of investigation will be aroused. Third Selected Messages, page 234. What we must understand is that 
if I'm in an environment, I want you to think about this. Ladies and gentlemen, time is almost finished. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. In the, third angels me- in the third angels message presentation I was going to do, I was going to show you exactly where we are in time. But time doesn't allow it. We wouldn't be able to finish. We would start, but we wouldn't be able to finish. It shows us exactly where we are in time. I was going to show you all the end time events and where we are right now under the third angels message to see how soon a Sunday law was going to be passed. And then the call into the experience of the third angel. We must understand that there's much that we have learned, but we're going to need to do something. And I'm going to close with this thought. In early writings, page 67, it says, said the angel, deny self. Ye must step fast. Some of us have had time to get the truth and to advance step by step. And every step we have taken has given us strength to take the next. But now time is almost finished. And what we have been years learning they will have to learn in a few months. Did you know that God can teach you in a few months what others have learned in years? That's the good news. You see, if you apply yourself, if you're willing to say, I need to remove false education from my mind, because unless I do that, I'm going to receive false education in my mind, and then whatever goes on in my mind is going to come out in my character, and I'm going to demonstrate Babylonian behavior. And I'm still going to be lost, even though I'm in the remnant. then that means that what we need to learn, we only have a few months to do it. It says they will have to learn in a few months. And I'm not saying that probation closes in a few months. What I'm saying is is that in a few months you can learn if you apply yourself. It goes on to say they will also have much to unlearn and much to learn again. Some of us, brothers and sisters, I grew up in the public school system, and I'm telling you right now that I have scars upon me and my mind that I wish my parents knew this truth. My parents were not Seventh-day Adventists. They weren't even Christians. They, They weren't anything. They were just in the world, just vegetating, moving with the world. Thank the Lord they died, Christians. But they did make a lot of mistakes. And the point is, brothers and sisters, is that You have a ripe opportunity, especially for those of us, I see parents here with little children, oh, give them the best. Give them the best and leave out the rest. Make whatever sacrifice you need to make. Brothers and sisters, I'm serious. If the only way you can give your children true education is to sell your home and downgrade to something smaller so that bills will not demand that you have to run out and leave your children to let some Philistine educate them, you do what you have to do to save your children. Because I guarantee you this, when the time comes and we must meet Jesus in the judgment, God is going to ask a question. Where is the flock? The little flock that I've given you. And unfortunately, hell is going to be filled with ministers. You know why? Because many ministers today are neglecting their own families and their own children in the name of soul winning. And brothers and sisters, that's working backwards and out of God's order. There are many young ladies and many young boys that need their daddies around, that need them around to go ahead and teach and preach the truth and be an example of what it is to be a godly man, godly husband, godly father. There are many people who have sacrificed their own families in the name of giving truth. Be careful, brothers and sisters. Step fast. What we have learned that we realize is error, we need to unlearn it. There are some individuals that need to come out of some of these schools and start all over again. It's going to mean that parents and everybody are going to have to work together. There are some people that may be able to stay in the schools because they're grounded and established, but they may have to redirect their reasons why they're in the school. 
But nevertheless, brothers and sisters, we are told that they will also have much to unlearn and much to learn again. Those who would not receive the mark of the beast and his image when the decree goes forth must have decision when? Now. To say nay, we will not regard the institution of the beast. Brothers and sisters, we must understand that time is almost finished. And the great call of Jesus is for us to reflect the lovely image of Jesus as we should. Satan has put a tremendous work upon us by bringing about Babylonian Greek education to yours and my minds to unfit us and fill us with the spirit of doubt so that we will not believe God and his truth. And God is saying to all of us today, he's saying, listen, choose you this day whom you will serve. It's decision time, brothers and sisters. We're all going to have to make hard decisions. We are. And I'm not saying that anybody should get up and run out and just quit school and all these things. You're going to have to talk to the Lord. You're going to have to make your decision. But what I'm saying is, is that we cannot just simply function as status quo. We have to start looking at the issues at hand and really start saying, Lord, what is the decision that is best for my life? And don't be surprised. If God is going to call you out of some things, don't be surprised if God calls you in some things. But he does it all that we may be saved. My hope and my prayer is that if you believe that you have been under the teaching of false education and that spirit of doubt (coughs) has taken residence in your heart and mind. And you're saying, Brother Lemon, I want you to pray for me. And remember me in your prayers that I will no longer doubt God's word and doubt his truth and let the teachings of false education affect my mind. And I will keep my mind stayed upon him and have perfect peace. If that's your sentiment of your heart, would you stand with me? You're standing because you're saying, hey, I've been affected by this false education. I've been hit by it. And I found myself doubting at times. But you know what? By the grace of God, I want to keep my mind stayed on him. And may he give me perfect peace in return. Please, parents, give your children the best and leave out the rest. You will look odd, singular, and straight-laced to the world. But God knows, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. You can have the world, but give me Jesus. My wife and I, we made that decision for our family. We put them even in one of our schools. And we did it just to try to see if it could work. And it broke our hearts when we had to take them out. Brothers and sisters, we are in such a crisis right now. And if only we could really see what's happening in this world and in this truth. I pray that Pastor Bohr, Pastor Davis, and, and all the other speakers, I pray that, that, that the Spirit of God has been working. I believe the Spirit of God has been working through them. I believe the Spirit of God has been working here. Amen? And, and we want to get to a point, don't walk blindsided. We are a church that is under attack, and it is because we are the church. It is because we are the remnant. This church is not Babylon, but Satan has planted tares to try to tear down. And God wants to build us up. May God help us that we will be thou faithful, even unto death, 
For it is then and only then that we shall receive our crown of life. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you, dear God. Lord, we are not going to be able to win this battle without you. We need your spirit, Lord. We need power. We need truth. We need your love. And Father, we're pleading with you, please help us to realize the times in which we are living. Help us, dear God, to understand the great crisis that is upon us and how the soon coming of Jesus Christ is so near. May we be a people prepared to meet our God and may you remove the teachings and the effects of false education and bring us into a light of true education where we know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Please take this feeble effort of this message and let it do something in the hearts of thy people that we will stand for you though the heavens may fall. And we thank you that though these things may seem impossible with man, we know that all things are possible with God. Guide families, press them together, help them, Lord, to come together and meet and talk and pray and seek your face, Lord, to know what are the best decisions that need to be made. I believe changes need to be made in many homes. Father, help them to make the right decisions that will not be fanatical, but will be faithful. This is our prayer we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.